If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 585. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage. That's brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And purchase your courses there. That keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcast going. Purchase one of my books. Go to wherever books are sold online. Search for my name. Get all these great books that I've written, of course, the most recent is The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribbling. So you want to pick up those books. Also, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. <clears throat> Share this podcast around on social media. That's how we grow the audience. That's how we get people interested in the show. And we're kicking off the week here. It's President's Day. And we should have, you know horns going off or something. President's Day today. So uh, that's a one of the worst holidays in the United States. And some people take it off, some people don't. But uh, the fact is, this was always Washington's birthday. But then we had Lincoln, so we had to put Lincoln in. Then, of course, Richard Nixon thought, we'll just throw everybody in there. Now, President's Day is not an official holiday. That's what most people don't realize. But it is kind of a recognized shopping day and other things. So in honor of President's Day, we're going to kick off the week with a new book out by a friend and colleague. And if you're looking at it on the podcast, here it is. The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren G. Harding by Ryan Walters. And so I really like this book. Uh, now, I've never written, written about uh, Harding in anything that I've done before. Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America did not include Warren Harding in The Four Who Tried to Save Her. Of course, Harding didn't screw up America. If you take my president's class at McClanahan Academy, I cover Warren Harding. Um, so if you want to get 25% off of that class, or as a matter of fact, any class at McClanahan Academy, just use the coupon code PRESIDENTS, and you can take it off. Just go, when you check out, put in the coupon PRESIDENTS, get 25% off of any class, including the bundles, which are already discounted, so you get that 25% off. So it's a win-win. Now, this book is fun. I'll have to say that there are very few history books that I read that I can actually say are fun to read. Many of them, you slog through them, they're, they're tough to get through. This book was a fun read. I read it in just a few hours. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. And I want to talk about some of the things he says in the book because I got into this in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. And of course, if you took uh, my Originalist Papers class at McClanahan Academy, you also get into the original intent of the executive branch. But I remember, and I've said this before, doing the publicity for that book, and I said most presidents of the last hundred years should have been impeached because they've all done unconstitutional things. And the way we rank presidents is based on a faulty 
assumption of what the presidency was designed to do. And so when you look at the top presidents, they're usually presidents that did all kinds of unconstitutional things. Why? Well, because that's what people gravitate towards, right? We have a crisis and we have an executive that comes in and does amazing things, supposedly, and solves the crisis. I think the best example of that in the modern age, of course, is Franklin Roosevelt, who in 1933 comes in and says he is going to essentially forget Congress if they won't do what he wants. He's just going to go around him. He's just going to do whatever he wants. He's going to become a dictator-in-chief. And he was, you know, the gardener-in-chief and uh, the labor boss-in-chief. And I mean, he was, he was everything, right? Franklin Roosevelt assumed dictatorial powers in 1933. And we've never gone back from that. I remember when I was an undergraduate, back in my days when I thought, you know, going to war all the time was a good thing. You know, everyone starts at that if you're a, if you're a conservative. You get, oh yeah, we was, you know, back at the time we were, we were involved in the, in the Persian Gulf. And, and I thought this is great. You know, we're going to go out there and kick everybody's butt. And it's going to be fun. Well, thinking back on that, there was a political science professor, a leftist, who complained and said, look, We've never come off a wartime footing since 1945. We've always been, since the end of World War II, on a wartime footing. And his complaint was that we spend all this money on the Defense Department and we don't spend enough on social programs. Well, we, we spend too much on both, right? I mean, there's, there's evidence out there where you've got a horrible situation with homeless problem in California. Well, why? Well, because they're giving money away to people. And the same thing is true with the Defense Department. We have a foreign policy problem because we spend too much money on defense. It's not really on defense. We're spending it on offense. And so when you look at that and you look at how the United States has been dramatically changed since 1945, and then you go back and read Warren Harding, 1921, as he assumes office, America was different then. And America was different in that decade before the 1930s and leading into the Great Depression. Of course, Herbert Hoover did much to help prolong the Great Depression. Warren Harding solved an economic crisis by literally doing nothing. I mean, this, this is the thing. He, he didn't go out and try to come up with all these different social programs and government spending and all this nonsense. Warren Harding was, uh, was responsible for uh, putting forward the idea that we should cut taxes and cut spending and the economy will right itself. Well, you know what had happened. Cut taxes, cut spending. You see, but that's the exact opposite of what government now is trained to do. If we have an economic downturn, what we need to do is raise taxes and increase spending. That's the exact opposite of what you need to do. And it's been proven over and over and over again, yet people want Santa Claus. They want the big bowl of candy. And so cutting taxes and cutting spending isn't going to be politically popular because at first there's going to be less money going into people's pockets that are sitting on the system, right? So they're not going to get as much. But what's going to ultimately happen is that money that's now saved, people can go out and put it into the economy and do things with it, and that's going to create jobs and everything else. So people are going to have to work. But we've lost this, this value of work, too, in America. So there's a lot of cultural things going on here. But Warren Harding is certainly one of the more uh, underrated presidents in American history. Walters says he's the most maligned president in American history. And he's typically ranked near the bottom. Now, I think he points out there's polls that Harding is near the bottom most of the time. And I'll say this. One thing I'll say, there's a reason why we have all that. Because most historians who rank presidents don't know anything. 
They don't know anything. They don't study it. They just go and regurgitate whatever they've been told throughout their lives. It's historiography. It's, uh, you know, I, I was... I took this class in college, and this professor I had said Harding was awful, so he's awful. They don't go out and read anything about Harding or read anything Harding wrote or really look at the history. Most of them are, are ranking these presidents. It's out of their field. They're not presidential historians. And even if they were presidential historians, they're going to be on the left, and they're going to think someone like Franklin Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson or Abraham Lincoln or Lyndon Johnson or Harry Truman, these are going to be great presidents because they did something, right? They went out and did something. The problem is with all those people, Teddy Roosevelt, all those people were doing things that are unconstitutional. So if we're going to rate the presidents, we should look at how they defended their oath. And Harding did a very good job of that. And I think that's something Walters really brings out in this book. I can't say enough about this book. It's fun. You got to get it. It's a fun book to read. And I think that you won't be disappointed in it. But I, I want to talk about a couple of things he says in it. He says on uh, page uh, 12 of the introduction, and I'm just going to go through some of the stuff in the introduction. I'm not going to get in the meat. I want you to read the book, so I'm not going to steal its thunder. But he says this. Defending President Warren Harding may be a daunting task, but it is of particular importance for conservatives in the present time because of Harding's similarity to former President Donald Trump. This is I read some reviews online about this, and people got really turned off by that. But he does make some interesting parallels to the America First movement, that's there. In 2016, Trump ran what amounted to a Harding campaign. Harding's return to normalcy, Jared Cohen has written, was basically the 1920 version of Make America Great Again. He's right about that. He's right about that. And you know, the thing is, Jimmy Carter ran a very much a Harding campaign in 1976 in some ways, at least, at least when you had Pat Cadell involved in it, right? This is popular. People don't realize this, but it's something that even goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. If you read Pericles' funeral oration, it was very similar to this, and I've talked about this on this podcast. It was make Athens great again. It was bring out the best of Athens. Let's respect that. Let's admire that. Let's emulate that. And in 1920, Harding was doing the same thing with that message. Let's bring out the best of America. We're going to make America great. It's going to be great. We're going to continue to make it great. And this is the exact same thing Donald Trump was capitalizing on in 2016. It is a popular thing. It's not a bunch of programs. It's backward looking, but it's it's nostalgic and people it resonates with people. People gravitate to that. Both Harding and Trump campaigned on America First policies on trade, immigration, foreign policy, and putting the American people first. And like President Harding, Trump was attacked in similar ways for similar reasons. The establishment despises those with such a viewpoint. It always has. So it's important for those who hold similar values to defend President Harding and the issues for which he stood. And again, Ryan goes out and he writes a very good, it's regnary history, so it's, it's a conservative press, but he does a very good job in, in doing this and defending Warren Harding, Harding from attacks. What you have to realize is that the attacks that were leveled at Warren Harding were generally by those on the left. He wasn't pro progressive enough. He wasn't on the left enough. He didn't do things that they wanted. Right? We just had a long period of time with progressives in charge, starting with Teddy Roosevelt, going on to Taft, then to Wilson. I mean, for nearly 20 years, we had uninterrupted progressive control of the general government. So when Harding comes in, and look, Harding wasn't uh, a, a conservative of the antebellum period. Harding was still progressive in some ways, and some of the things he did mirrored that. 
But he comes into office and he's not going to be Woodrow Wilson. He's not going to go out and try to police the world. In fact, he's a peacemaker. Uh, we saw tremendous economic growth, but it's not fostered by government programs, which is what exactly what Wilson and Roosevelt and Taft, but more Wilson and Roosevelt wanted to do. You had the square deal, right? So you had that. And then, of course, you had Wilson's legislative program during World War I. I mean, that was a complete destruction of the original intent of the United States. And essentially, that provided the blueprint for Franklin Roosevelt in the Great Depression. Of course, Herbert Hoover as well was, was building on some of that before Roosevelt even took office. But then you look at the rankings, and you look at why Harding is ranked the way he is, and it's because people don't know anything. Walters continues, But with all the good that may come from this book, there will also be some bad, and most assuredly I'll be tagged with the dreaded label historical revisionist, or worse. Of course, right? Because anytime you come out and you say, well, wait, let's reconsider somebody, particularly someone who has been maligned. I mean, if you're going to be a revisionist. Now, the real revisionists, though, are typically those that do the maligning. But here is a couple of quotes. As Thomas Bailey observed in Presidential Greatness, quote, Harding is reckoned a rock-bottom failure by the experts, and this view is so commonly held that for an historian to argue otherwise is heresy. Heresy. To say that Harding was actually a good president is heresy. Think about what you're saying there. This is a religion. This is the secular religion of America. So if you have a view of a president that doesn't fit, doesn't comport with the modern historical rankings, you're a heretic to the historical profession and the secular religion of America. American presidents have to be measured by how much they abuse power. And if they abuse it a lot, they're going to be great. Now, some exceptions can be there, of course. Even though I put George Washington in the nine presidents who screwed up America, I still like George Washington. Uh, Washington was listening to Hamilton far too much, which was his greatest problem. But he still did a couple of things that were downright awful that set the stage for some other awful people later on. Same thing with Thomas Jefferson. Even though I included him in the four that tried to save her, Jefferson's second term was downright awful. So you have that, right? Presidential historian and, by the way, leftist, Michael Beachloss once told the New York Times in regards to Harding, quote, if you had to reach for a great revisionist mountain to climb, that would be it. Of course, Harding is that great revisionist mountain. So from the beginning, Walters is taking a pretty brave position here and saying that Warren Harding is a great president. And that's what he does. Now, the Harding family has, has sent him a letter saying, thank you for writing this book. It's about time somebody did this for Warren Harding. And it is, right? And we should be doing this with other people. Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson. And we should really be reevaluating the people that are put at the top. Now, a lot of people have done this. But in a way that you take these bottom dwellers and resurrect their careers and show how they really were good presidents based on the oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's their oath. So he continues in the prologue, which I like. He says, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that at least some of the negative opinion about Harding is due to political differences. Well, obviously it is. Harding's status as the consummate conservative president has obviously led to many of the assaults by historians who do not share his worldview. Writing in 1966, Thomas Bailey, a scholar of the presidency in American foreign policy, noted that Harding is, quote, 
generally downgraded by the experts, themselves largely Democrats who admire Wilson and the League of Nations, which Harding spurned. This is true, right? Harding was not an internationalist. Harding was trying to rein in that idea that America needs to be the world police or have an American empire. Now, of course, these people are going to point back and say, well, if we just got involved in the League of Nations, we wouldn't have World War II. How do we know that? How do we know that at all? Does that mean Hitler would not have been aggressive? The League of Nations wouldn't have been able to stop Hitler? They couldn't. I mean, the United States had to be involved in that to stop Hitler. It didn't work, right? So how do we know this? How do we know the League of Nations would have stopped the, the, the spread of Soviet communism? I mean, it couldn't do any of that, right? So this is just a, a stupid position, but it's based on the fact that you have people who have political views ranking the presidents. And look, I do too. It's not that I'm saying I'm doing something that I, I'm, I'm completely objective in this, even though I will rank people that I don't necessarily like higher or lower, or some people I like lower. I like Washington, but I'm going to rank him lower than other people that I may not even like that much. Robert Spencer, who ranked Harding as the ninth best president in his book, Rating America's Presidents, agrees, writing, quote, Harding's presidency deserves an honest reassessment but that is unlikely to happen given the fact that most historians today share Wilson's messianic globalism and visions of massive state control. Absolutely. You see, again, you look at the rankings, you look at how presidents are ranked, and anyone that did a really bad job in defending their oath is usually ranked very high. And this goes back to Alexander Hamilton in some ways. It goes back to Hamilton because in June of 1787, Hamilton stood up and said, you know what we need? We need an elected king. And everyone rejected it there. But Hamilton was prescient. He understood this is eventually what we were going to get. Because if you create that executive branch, it's going to devolve into an elected king. It has to. Now, the founding generation didn't want that. That's something we have to understand. They didn't want an elected king. They, they voted against that. Hamilton's speech went nowhere. It fell on deaf ears, and Hamilton packed up his bags and went home. That's not what we got out of Philadelphia. It's not what we got out of the ratification debates. But it is what we got, ultimately, with the way the president operates. Harding says, For students of the modern presidency, presidential success seems to center on the vision thing, as President George H.W. Bush described it. Progressive, forward-looking, idealistic presidents such as Woodrow Wilson certainly had it. Harding most certainly did not. His detractors continually tell us. Charles Faber and Richard Faber in the American presidents ranked by performance assert that Harding, quote, was not an inspirational leader and did not provide energetic and creative leadership as president. He did not have an organized plan laid out for the accomplishments of a list of goals and was not much concerned about long-range planning, being more interested in the president, I'm sorry, the present than the future. Lacking charisma, Harding did not inspire people. They followed him mainly because he had, he and they wanted to go in the same direction. According to the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, which studies the American presidency, quote, most historians regard Harding as the worst president in the nation's history. In the end, it was not his corrupt friends, but rather Harding's own lack of vision that was most responsible for his tarnished legacy. So think about that. Lack of vision. It's not policy. W one thing that Walters does really well here, really well, and he, of course, he builds us off what Pat Buchanan said too, and I, I like that, right? Anytime you can bring Pat Buchanan in. One thing he does really well of talking about Harding is comparing Harding to John F. Kennedy. The two men served in office about the same amount of time. John F. Kennedy is usually ranked as one of the best presidents in American history by all these leftists who rank presidents, whereas Harding is ranked lower. But when you look at their accomplishments, 
Harding did much more and much more productive things than Kennedy ever did. But you see, we have sound bites from Kennedy. We have this great inspirational inaugural address from Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do, ask what you can do for your country. We have that, right? And we have Kennedy in the space race. And we've got Kennedy fighting back against you know, people who are abusing civil rights in the South. We've got, but Harding did the same thing. Harding was doing the same thing. Harding was doing things long before Kennedy was doing that would be very similar to what Kennedy would wanted to accomplish in the South. Walters points out one important fact. Harding won by the largest popular vote in American history to that point in 1920. This means this man was extremely popular. Compare that with another very important president who's ranked highly, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln never got a majority of the vote of the United States. And I say that because if you said the South was still in the Union, well then if you put the South in with the North in both 1860 and 64, which we know they weren't, but this is how people want to tell the story. Lincoln would have lost both times by crushing majorities in the popular vote. And this is all that matters to the left, unless it's Abraham Lincoln, then the Electoral College matters. So if you just use their own logic that, you know, this is a minority, Trump was a minority president, never got, I mean, this, this, you know, we had these minority presidents. We, the popular vote's all that matters, really. Well, then Lincoln is awful. He got 39.6% of the popular vote in 1860. In 1864, he barely got over 50%, and that's with voter fraud and without the South voting in the election. The South votes, Lincoln loses both times, popular vote. Okay, so Lincoln was not a popular president, but yet he's one of the greatest. Of course, that's a ridiculous assessment, but he's one of the greatest. And I think that's horrible, right? So Harding wins by a crushing landslide in 1920, and yet he's one of the worst. See, this is where historians are so wrapped up in presentism, they don't see that at the time, Harding was well-loved, well-liked. People liked Warren Harding. They wanted the United States to go in the direction he was promising, a return to normalcy, America first, essentially. So he gets into the end. He talks about Pat Buchanan, and this is a nice quote from from Pat Buchanan, and I like this, and then he, he wraps up with, with, a, uh, with his own assessment. But he says, look, conservative commentator, author, and three-time presidential candidate Patrick J. Buchanan, who, like Trump, ran on Harding's America First agenda, has praised Harding and questioned the presidential rankings and those who create them. This is a long quote from Pat Buchanan now, but I like that he threw this in here. Quote, Now consider one of the men whom all the Raiders judge a failure and among our worst presidents, Warren G. Harding. Harding served five months less than JFK before dying in office in 1923. Yet his diplomatic and economic triumphs were of the first order. He negotiated the greatest disarmament treaty of the century, the Washington Naval Agreement, which gave the United States superiority in battleships and left us and Great Britain with capital ship strength more than three times as great as Japan's. Even Tokyo conceded a U.S. diplomatic victory. With Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, Harding cut Wilson's wartime income tax rates, which had gone as high as 63% to 25%, ended the stagflation of the Wilson presidency, and set off the greatest boom of the century, the Roaring Twenties. When Harding left, uh, when Harding took his oath, unemployment was at 12%. When he died 29 months later, it was at 3%. This is a failure, he asked? That's a failure? This is the question that you have to ask. So all these good things happen, but that's somehow a failure. Harding failed? I mean, this is ridiculous. 
Polls like these, he concludes, tell us more about who has been doing the ranking than they do about real history. Real history, in contrast, is the objective of this book. And that's Ryan Walter saying that at the end. So I love this little book. And again, it's it's not long. It's a couple hundred pages. Uh, let me see. It's actually 189 pages. So a couple hundred pages, a quick read, a fun read, an engaging and enticing read. You're going to get into it, and you're really going to enjoy it. I guarantee it. As you read The Jazz Age President, let me show it again one more time on camera. The Jazz Age President, Defending Warren Harding, uh, Ryan S. Walters. Great book. Well worth your time on President's Day to buy and then read in honor of President's Day. We should really be looking at these presidents who are uh, maligned and at the bottom to figure out you know, why is that. Is it really because they were that bad or is it because of politics and the people ranking them? You're going to find, I, I can say almost 100% of the time, it's the latter. It's the politics of the historians. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you on the next one. See you then.